Hey, my name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here, and I'm so glad that you are here or down there or further down or watching online. It is a treat to get to be together on the Lord's Day, where we proclaim that Jesus is alive. That's the whole reason we are where we are when we are. So if you would join me in prayer, we'll spend the remainder of our time looking into God's Word and seeing what He has for us. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, God, that whatever might still be going on in the heart of any hearer, any person present, that would prevent them from hearing from you by your spirit, among your people, through your word, that you would remove that, that there would be nothing whatsoever that would prevent you from having your purpose accomplished in us. So, Father, I pray that you would be honored and that these truths would sound forth and not return void. And we pray all these things, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it was 1919, and reform was going too slowly. And so in 1919, in Russia, revolution broke out. Largely, they said, because of a simmering, smoldering frustration with how the tyrants of the West had rather casually, so it seemed, sent millions and millions of people to their death in World War I. And so they began a new idea of putting into practice the ideas and the writings of Karl Marx. They instituted the umbrella of communism and they practiced collectivism in which people's resources were all gathered together and they were then evenly distributed by the people themselves for the people. A bunch of international investigative journalists were invited to come and tour the fruits of this new revolution and they were shown these little communities where all the people were happy. It was a society that had no classes. Production was booming. There were resources for everyone. And all these journalists were amazed at what they saw. One journalist in particular, a man named Lincoln Steffens, who was from California. He was from Northern California himself, an idealist who was also very sick and tired of the industrial war complex and how it seemed that all these deaths served only to profit the powerful and the elite. He had been covering the Mexican Revolution in 1914. And so he goes over to Russia and this is what he writes. I have seen the future and it works. But unfortunately, as it turned out, all of those communities that were demonstrated to the journalists, well, it was almost entirely smoke and mirror, hiding the atrocities that were happening other places in the then Soviet Union. So much so that their economy immediately collapsed and it brought us into, tragically, horrifically, World War II. Not only that, but about 70 years after the Russian Revolution, the Berlin Wall comes down, and that entire Marxist communist experiment in the Soviet Union fundamentally and functionally fell and failed. As it turned out, the future had not crashed back into the present. All of those journalists rushed back home and said, hey, we've seen the future. This is it. We have to do this as well. We must make change. We must live as though the future had crashed into the present, but it hadn't. And it never will, not in that way. But what if there actually was 
a kingdom from the future that was pure and perfect and powerful and never-ending, that would scale, that was glorious. What if that kingdom actually did crash back into our present? How would that change things? Well, it would change everything. And I have very good news. It's true. I have seen the future. Oh, and it works. That's the theme of our study through the book of Titus, Grace works. It also sets us up for our big idea right here in the center of our series in the book of Titus, sort of the central passage of our study. Our big idea goes like this. Grace has come. Glory is coming. Now that's the, that's the centrality of our confession. That's what we hold to. That is what we cling to. That is what we embrace, internalize, and breathe Grace has come, glory is coming. So much so, I want for all of us on all three floors, I want you to repeat after me. It goes like this Grace has come, and then glory is coming. Let's try it again. Grace has come, glory is coming. Now, I can just about promise you, you're going to have a situation, a conversation, a relationship, an encounter of some sort within the next seven days, and you're going to need to remember that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Grace has come. Glory is coming. So with that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to begin reading in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Because grace has come, glory is coming. Now, I want to remind you that the little book of Titus is just a short three-chapter book, but it follows perfectly Paul's gospel template, the gospel Paul's great story, his awesome announcement, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. In other words, Jesus at the incarnation grabs the borders and the boundary of the future kingdom and he drags it all the way back across into our presence and the future is available to us now. He pins it there with his death, burial, and his resurrection. It's that big of a deal. And for Paul, a Jew, to think this age is full of persecution and oppression, man, wouldn't re reform be great? Yes. Wouldn't revolution be great? Yes. But you know what's even better? Redemption. With all that, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. This is sort of the central passage of the little book of Titus. There's way more than I could ever adequately cover in the time that we have left. And so I want to remind you, you should be getting emails about this each week. Every Monday, Matt and myself, or maybe Matt and somebody else, we record a podcast called What's the Word, where we sort of just casually deep dive into the passage that we will have just studied this morning. And then we put that out on YouTube. We put that on our SoundCloud so that you can listen to not just the sermon, but a more deep dive, casual conversation and dialogue. 
dialogue. So if you haven't been getting those emails with that podcast link, please let us know. We want to make sure that you have access to all of that. Now then, I want to unpack this as efficiently as I can, but it's just such a massive, massive passage. I think it's probably my favorite passage ever right now because it's just so thick and rich. So just bear with me. I might get a little frothy up here. We're going to get through this. Let's start back in verse 11. Four. Paul starts with a conjunction. Four. He's connecting everything he's written previously, which was this massive 10-verse household code. This is how you go about daily living. This is how you conduct your life in the world, with your family, in your place of employ, with your, with your servants, your spouses, all those kinds of things. But don't just try hard to do those things. Nowhere in the Bible does it merely tell you to try harder to be better. For no, that is a law and a chain and a burden, and it is death. That is never the message of the Bible. Paul says, for, this is how we are to live, for. And then Paul, you know, we've described Paul before, back when we were in our study on Acts and then again in Romans. We know from a very early church inscription that Paul was about yay high, bow-legged, bald-headed, unibrow, and had really gross eye afflictions. So he could go a little bit Yoda sometimes. This is one of those times. He starts verse 11, and the very first word is appearing. Mm, appearing to the grace of God. I don't know why I just did Yoda. Anyway, he's putting this word in the emphatic position to say, listen, I'm telling you, this is how you live daily life. He's come. The appearance, the manifestation, the, the word would be translated literally, the shining forth, the emanation, the very grace of God. Y'all, 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 it's come. It's not what we expected. We thought it was a white horse riding out of the sky with the armies of heaven. <laughs> it was a defenseless baby. The whole grace of God. He has come, and it's not just a force. It's not just an idea. It's not a myth. It's not a program or a policy. It's a person. It's Jesus. He himself is the personification of the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, epiphanen, manifested, shown up, shined forth. It has now arrived, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that every single human being will be saved? No, clearly not. Paul, we have to remember, is writing to a man named Titus who has authority to establish and clean up the mess on the island of Crete, which is populated largely by, that's right, Cretans. These are some knuckle-dragon folks on the island of Crete. And Paul's purvey to Titus says, I need you to clean this up. Even people from Crete have accessibility because of the appearance of God's grace in Christ. So not all human beings ever, but all different kinds of people. It turns out the answer for human salvation comes through Jewish Messiah. Nobody saw that coming. Both Jew and Gentile together grafted into the same root, joined as a confluence into the same stream of God's grace. He has brought salvation for all people. When he grabbed the boundaries of the future kingdom and dragged it back and dropped it into the presence, in the present age, it turns out it was for all races of humankind. Now that's very good and surprising news. Verse 12, this grace, Paul's gonna continue, this grace does something. Remember, this grace is a person. It's Jesus. This grace trains us. The word has the idea of, of discipline, reproof, rebuke, rearing, correcting, discipling. 
where we get our word for like pedagogical models. It, it's, it's leading us and driving us in a specific direction. The grace of God has, is training us in the present tense to do two things, to get rid of two negative things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Let, let me explain this as, as directly as I can. The grace of God has come. Oh, glory's coming. But the grace of God has come. And his grace, Jesus, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, you might hear that and go, yeah, I know. I, 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 I struggle. I should try harder. Stop. Start over. You're, nope, nope, nope. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. No. Paul's saying it is the grace of God, Jesus, who trains us. It's like he's saying, listen, don't you understand who and what you are? You are an actual human being. There's nothing else like you. You are a human being created in the image of God. No other being has that nobility, that dignity. And when we practice ungodliness and worldly passions, following the, the way of the world, as it were, Paul's going, no, what are you doing? That's, it's not just immoral, although it is. It's unbecoming. It doesn't fit. The kingdom has been stretched from the future back into the present, and you're still trying to live according to the present? What are you doing? Either you don't really understand the gospel, that's all of us, or you don't believe it. That's maybe many of us. That the gospel is not merely one day when I die, I sure hope, fingers crossed, I go to heaven. That's not good news. The gospel is that he has grabbed the future and coming kingdom and he's dragged it across into our present and we get to live according to the future kingdom now. So why in the world would you follow that pattern? See, it is actually grace that works. This grace is training us. It's giving us the, the, the template and the pattern we see it in the life of Jesus himself. We see it in the early church fathers. And as it's been passed down generation to generation, we see it in people like Tom. We see it in people like Dash. The grace of God as the spirit of God indwells other believers. And other believers go, that, that is the way of the new kingdom right there. Not to shame everybody else, no, but this is how the new kingdom works. This is why our church is organized and administered the way that it is. It trains us to do two things, to get rid of ungodliness and worldly passions, but it also trains us to do some things positively, and that's very good news. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. So grace is telling us how to live daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment. The grace, that means the gospel is to infiltrate Every single aspect of your life, awake, asleep, alone, in a crowd, there is no corner of your existence that the gospel is not relevant to. The grace of God is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you not see what he's saying? Listen, the gospel means the kingdom has been stretched back into the present. We live new kingdom lives in the present age. And Jesus himself is training us to do that. When I still follow the pattern of the world, hypothetically, and I lose my temper and blow my top at a family member whose name shall not be mentioned out loud, just hypothetically again, pure and simple, it's because I have compartmentalized my life apart from the gospel. 
I have failed to believe the gospel, that I have all that I need in Christ, that I have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies already, says Ephesians 1. And instead, this alleged hypothetical person has somehow blocked one of my expectations as though I need more because the world says I deserve to have my expectations met. And so I cling fiercely to that. But the gospel comes along and says, what are you doing? You're from the future. Let it go. You're from the future. You don't need that many nachos. Hypothetically, again, the gospel trains me to live even in those most mundane, basic human encounters and interactions. Now, I want to deep dive for just a moment here on one of these words because I'm betting you, like me, have a translation that sort of softens this. Verse 12, training us to live self-controlled, that's pretty obvious, upright, that's, see, not particularly helpful. The word upright... The word is dikaios. It's literally righteous or just. The grace of God has appeared, and it is training us to live righteously or justly. Now, here's the problem. In the 21st century, most of us Western evangelicals, we hear righteous, and we think, oh, that's right. That's about me behaving properly and privately and being good. No, it isn't. Christian, pre-Christian, I want to disabuse you of that error. That is not what righteous is. All through the Bible, from the table of contents to the maps, the term righteous, as it applies to a person or people, always has a singular idea and notion. I got him, Bruce Waltke, who's kind of like the seminary professor to seminary professors. He puts it this way. All through scripture, the righteous are the ones who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community. The unrighteous or the wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community for the sake of themselves. That is our default proclivity and bent, is to disadvantage everybody else. But the grace of God teaches us, trains us, disciplines and disciples us to be righteous to have the capacity, it's a superpower. You don't have it in your own strength ever. Nobody ever has. But to be the kind of people that now, supernaturally, because you're from the future, you're the kind of person that lives my life for y'all. As opposed to being the kind of person that's y'all's life for me, which our world's got plenty of that, thanks very little. But the gospel actually trains us to live upright. No, no, no. Righteous lives. Why? Why is that a big deal? Because that's godly. God is the righteous one. That's what God's like. His life for us. Mike talked about it as we discussed substitution and communion. His life for the undeserving. We get to do the same things. Head on a swivel, looking for opportunities to love others for their sake. Because we're from the future. Grace has come. Glory is coming. In the present age, verse 13, sort of the little, uh, the good news sandwich. Right here in the middle of this passage is verse 13. It's so delicious. The grace of God is training us to live. How do we live? Waiting. All this is grammatically connected. The grace of God is training us to live waiting. The Christian is to be characterized by eager anticipation, by fervent pacing by the window. Is he coming? 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 Oh, man. And then we get dull and we forget. 
And then football season comes. But then we're reminded all over again, oh, is he coming? Is he coming? Because grace has come. And just as sure as it has come, glory is also coming. We are trained to be waiting for our blessed hope. It's redundant. On purpose, blessed is happy. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. If he's coming back, that means by definition, he's alive which is the whole core of our confession. Jesus is alive, and he's coming back. He would not leave this unfinished. 1973, Carl Sagan famously said, the return of Jesus Christ is in the same category as the cow jumping over the moon, which breaks my heart for Carl Sagan. No, 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 no. Grace has come. Glory is coming. We see this right here in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, this confident expectation of something good in the future, the appearing, the manifestation, the shining forth, the showing up. It's the exact same word as in verse 11, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, if anyone ever tells you, you know, the Bible never claims that Jesus is God. First, you hit them with this book really hard. No, I'm kidding. You just quote Titus 2.13. It could not be a more clear declaration of Jesus' deity and divinity. And incidentally, the rest of the New Testament is pretty clear as well. Because I've heard scholars say the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, except for that part where Jesus is in the Bible. And then it's every page. Eagerly awaiting for the appearing of the glory. So grace has come, glory is coming. For the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is a thumb of the nose from the Apostle Paul to all of Rome because that is a title reserved exclusively for Caesar. He was the great God and Savior. Every major town, every major city in the Roman Empire had Neochorus, which was a temple for the emperor because he was God and Savior. And Paul says, oh no, actually, it was a Jewish mason from Nazareth. <laughs> we eagerly wait and anticipate him from there, verse 14, who, oh, see, this is why our hope is blessed. What's the opposite of a blessed hope? A cursed fear. Now, if verse 14 is not here, 13 would read our cursed fear. Because when Jesus comes back, it will be his glory fully revealed, unmitigated, unrestrained. And if you are still nothing more than a sin-soaked loser, then that will not be good news at all. But it is our blessed hope. How can this be? Paul anticipates our objection. He says in verse 14, who gave himself, there's that substitution for us, his life for us. He gave himself for us to redeem. And this is a technical word. It has the idea of unleashing, releasing to do something awesome. You were a slave bound in the market of sin, but I am releasing you to now go be, I don't know, a king. Because I am paying the ransom price, not to Satan, not to mankind, but to God himself, and I'm footing the bill for you to be a firstborn male heir of my kingdom. That's what that word lutrao, redeem means. You are unleashed and released to live as though you're from the future. Because in God's mind, you actually are. To redeem from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, I got to stop there for just a second and geek out. Because honestly, I don't know that Titus himself actually understood the enormity of what Paul just said. 
Paul bundled up all of Exodus and all of Ezekiel in about five words. In Exodus 19, the nation of Israel is to be gathered around Mount Sinai, and God's calling them up saying, you Israel, you Israel, you knuckle-dragging Zebulonites and Naphtalites, and oh man, y'all get under my skin if I had skin yet, but I don't. You guys drive me crazy, but you know what? I love you. You're mine. I'm going to make you, for me, a nation of priests. Purify yourselves and approach the mountain. And they went, nah, man, we're good. We want no part of that. Send Moses. And then they backed off and Moses went up. God said, you don't understand. I'm going to get this done. About 500 years or 1,000 years later, we have the prophet Ezekiel saying, and then I looked. And in the future, there was a coming kingdom. And in that kingdom, everybody who was in that kingdom was a priest, a royal priest who had been purified by God himself for his service. And Paul's saying, you want to know what God's will for your life is? <laughs> Paul says, he's done it. No one saw this coming. No one could have expected this. He's telling Titus, Titus, Jesus has done it. He has made for himself a royal priesthood done by Christ for Christ, a peculiar priestly people. God's done it. When I say that if you're a Christian, you're from the future, I'm not kidding. Spiritually and functionally and in the mind of God, you are from the future. You are what Paul says is periusine. You are a peculiar priestly person dragged back in time into the present age to live as a priest does. And what does a priest do? Simply point people to the sacrifice. That's what a priest does. This is God's will to make for himself a peculiar priestly people. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, this peculiar priestly people who are huh, zealous for good works. That word zealous comes from a Greek word. It's zealous. That's how we know that's a good translation. That actually becomes their characterization is good work. But that does not mean behaving better. Oh, for the last 180 years in evangelical Christianity, we've said good works means doing better stuff. No, it doesn't. More on that in a moment. Verse 15, therefore, Titus, this is how you clean up the world. Oh, just your little pocket there on the island of Crete, but this is how you clean up the world. You explain these things to people, that they are being beckoned, wooed, invited in to be a peculiar priestly people, that they get to live from the future in the present. Declare these things, he says. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Too much is at stake for you to water it down. Titus, Invite in these Cretan people, and ultimately, 2,000 years later, these people from East Texas. Because you see, Titus, grace has come. Glory is coming. What do we do with these very quick five verses? Let me unpack this and apply this with four very quick implications, and we'll begin to land this plane. Four very quick implications. Number one goes like this. There is no glory apart from from grace. I just want you to hear that. There is no glory apart from grace. The most ancient of all sin took place not in the garden, but actually in the high holy mountain of God. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 tell us that Lucifer, the bright star, 
the one who was a cherub who was in the service of God Most High, grasped. And he said, I want that glory for myself. I will be like the Most High. And he seized and he grasped and he was flicked off the mountain of God. And the pattern of his sin has infiltrated, it has contaminated all humanity for thousands and thousands of years. We all want glory. We come right out of the wrapper, craving credit, desperate for recognition, desperate for kudos. Our social media is built on the fact that you will do just about anything for a tiny little blue thumb. It's how much we crave glory. Glory feels good. In our flesh, we somehow do still believe that it's the measure of our worth. That's what leads us to do all kinds of crazy things because we need glory. But the crazy and the tragic and the ironic thing is the more we grasp for glory, the more wispy and faint it becomes. The more we try to get glory, the less we actually have. The more we try to push ourselves into the center, the more fringe and marginalized we actually become. But it's just like peace, grace, and then peace. Grace has come. Glory is coming. For us to really have glory, it has to be given to us by someone outside of us, someone other who happens, by the way, to have all of it. And it will be revealed, and he will share abundantly. Why would he do that? I wouldn't share glory with me. Oh, but he will, and he loves me, and he's good. So when, not if, Life gets frustrating. You begin to listen to the whispers that say you aren't getting enough credit or no one appreciates just how great you really are. Repeat to yourself over and over again. Oh yeah, grace has come. My glory is coming. And it is undeserved, but it's gonna be so much more than I could ever imagine. Grace has come. And just as certainly, glory is also coming. Second point, just so that we all understand what we're talking about from a theological standpoint, it goes like this. Salvation is an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. For so many Christians, there's a practical and a functional misunderstanding or an underappreciation for the enormity of their salvation. Salvation means we have been saved already from the penalty of sin. We never need fear seeing Jesus. Never. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has paid it all. We've been, we are in the process of being saved from the power of sin. Ever increasingly, day by day, as we are trained to live godly lives, we are being freed from the power of sin. One day, finally in the future, we will be fully saved from the presence of sin. In other words, for all believers, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And Jesus has accomplished all of this on our behalf, through substitution. And check this out. Saved people living like they're saved is a part of the salvation process. I want you to hear that again. Saved people living like they're saved is a part of the salvation process. Of course, I'm not saying that Jesus needs our help. He doesn't. Or that he needs a boost. He doesn't. But the more we follow his example, his pattern, his template, and we live godly lives, the more those shackles of the ways of the world and wickedness and ungodliness are far from us. It is a part of our present salvation process even now. And so perhaps a better way to think of salvation practically in our own lives is something more like everlasting lifeation. Not just salvation. That just has the idea that I was rescued out of a 
out of a burning building. But no, 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 no. Salvation has this idea of everlasting lifeation that has already begun because we're from the future. Third point, it goes like this. Wait well. If I could wrap my fingers around the the souls of the evangelical church in the world today, it's that we're not waiting well. Instead, we're mad as heck and we're not going to take it anymore. About every sort of other issue out there. But we are to wait well. We're to prepare for God's grace-filled future by living grace-filled in the present. But waiting well does not ever mean trying harder. Try hard, in fact, not to try hard. That's what we're after. If we long for his appearing, that means that there are two conditions that we long for. If you want him to return, if you're eagerly anticipating, cherishing his return, then there are two conditions that you can't wait for that will accompany his appearance. Two things. Number one, he will be known. The scriptures in both testaments make it clear that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, that guy, that one is Lord. He is God. At his return, he will be known. And so part of our walking around lives is that we want people to know Jesus. I'm not saying you have to flip open a a milk crate next to the parking garage and scream Jesus. Actually, please don't do that. That's bad for foundry business. We don't want you to do that. But in every relationship, You are being driven supernaturally by the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to introduce people to Jesus, to point them to the sacrifice. Jesus will be known. And if we are eager for his return, we want him to be known now because we're from the future, you see? Second, justice will fill the earth. I know a lot of Christians in the 21st century don't want to talk about this. I don't care. I have the microphone. When Jesus returns, justice will fill the earth. Nobody's arguing about that. So we don't get to merely pretend, ah, this world doesn't matter, it's all going to burn. No, 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 no. We're from the future. The the boundary of the kingdom has been dragged across and it's been planted. We get to live here in and out and so we have to pursue justice, being the kinds of people who will willingly disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. You do it as parents, You do it as children. You do it as siblings, as spouses. But when we as a church begin to do that for our community, then the gospel sounds forth with radiance and impact. How actively, how actively we participate in the waiting is often an indicator of how much we actually understand the gospel and how much we actually believe it. The weller we wait, the weller we wait. The weller we wait, the weller we wait. It feeds and builds on itself. It keeps getting better. See, grace has come and glory is coming. I know sometimes, as we conclude, the Bible sort of can maybe seem to be just a collection of ragtag stories. You got a guy about to get eaten by lions. You got a dude building a boat. You got some love poetry and Song of Solomon. What's that about? And then you got a bunch of letters by a cranky apostle. It just sort of seems like maybe there's, but the Bible's telling us one really wonderful, marvelous, great, grand, glorious narrative story. It started in a garden with Adam and Eve who were supposed to garden but in an utterly perfect environment. What exactly does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? How do you garden in a garden that God created that's perfect in every single way? Gardening is where you take the resources available provided by God and you rearrange them in such a way that blesses the community. 
That's gardening. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way. Jesus is the last Adam. He encounters Mary in the garden and sets the stage for the greatest gardening age since Genesis 1 and 2. The book of Revelation concludes with the people of God in the garden of God. And what are we all doing? We're continuing to rearrange those resources for the good of the community, feeding, blessing the nations. And so what does Paul mean when he says good work? He doesn't mean nice acts of kindness. Everyone agrees on this. No, our good work is gardening. You can go out and plant radishes if you like. That's not what we're talking about. Our good work is gardening. Lincoln Steffens, that American journalist, was wrong. It's not about collectivizing resources against people's will and removing the identity from people. It's actually quite the opposite. It's where the king knowingly blesses each person and loves each person so that they can willingly and joyfully rearrange their resources for the sake of others. Maybe you don't think of it this way, but doctors do gardening. Doctors take the resources of a shattered shoulder or a knee and they rearrange those things so that that person can have a restoration to health where they can get back to gardening. Teachers are gardeners in a sense. They take the chaos and the absolute trauma of a classroom of seven-year-olds ah, and they rearrange those resources so that education and learning and discipleship can occur. All different kinds of things. Bankers do it. Accountants do it. Entrepreneurs do it. Even occasionally pastors do it. We take the resources available to us and we rearrange them to be a blessing. And we do that because we're from the future, you see? A peculiar priestly people. Grace has come. Glory is coming. So our good work is gardening. Grace has come. Glory is coming. In the meantime, garden good, y'all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little passage, and I pray, God, that you would encourage those who are in need of encouragement. You'd afflict those in need of affliction. And perhaps, Father, you would shake us or stun us in areas where we are complacent, but that all of us increasingly would put more and more and more and more of our weight on the gospel and we would take more and more and more of the gospel into our lives. And if there is one or two or more here this morning, Father, that don't know you, I pray that you will move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would step out of a life of trying harder and failing and following the world's paths and passions and failing. But you would make them gospel people, a peculiar, priestly, particular people for yourself. For the rest of us, Father, Keep our eyes on the gospel. Help us to wait well. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.